Welcome to Back to the Basics with Pastor Jason McClendon. This program is sponsored by Crossroads Christian Fellowship, a non-denominational, conservative, and evangelical church focusing on returning to the mindset of believers in the New Testament church. The acronym BASICS, in the name of the program, stands for Believing and Sharing in Christ's Salvation. We are disciples making disciples who make disciples. And now, here is the message. Good morning and welcome to Crossroads Christian Fellowship. Today, I will be presenting part three of four parts of the deeper story of Christmas. The focus today will be on the wise men who came to visit Jesus. But first, let us pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for letting us be in a place where we can celebrate his birth. We thank you for the blessings that you give us and humbly ask that you continue to bless us specifically so that we may continue to bless others. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The reading for today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to visit Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found them, uh, found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This image of the three wise men coming to visit Jesus is one of the most popular of all Bible stories, and one that many people know, even those who don't know much else about the Bible. The story about the wise men who came to visit the baby Jesus, and whose remembrance is kept today as figures in many of the nativity scenes across the world, with the three wise men and their camels standing next to the shepherds, the angels, and some barn animals worshiping the just-born Messiah, just didn't happen. At least, not all at the same time as depicted in most of these nativity scenes. The passage I read a few moments ago, which was from the New International Version, refers to these visitors as magi. Now, some translations refer to them as wise men, and some people know them as the three kings. You probably remember the song, We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. Okay, I'm not going to continue singing that so you don't have to listen to me sing, but it is possible that these people were kings, but it is far more probable that they were not. 
They were most likely members of a royal court or royal courts and representing kings, but not kings themselves. The term magi could mean several different things, but most frequently it translates to simply wise men or wise ones. The magi of the time were sometimes seen as sorcerers, sometimes they were astrologers or astronomers, people who study ancient prophecies, etc. And of course, some people uh, may, uh, may pronounce this magi instead of magi, but either way, the word magic comes from the same root word from which we get magi. And of course, that means the word magician also comes from the same root word. In the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek and was the standard text that many Jews studied in the first century, the same Greek word is used in Daniel 1.20 and 2.2 and is translated to astrologer as in one who reads the stars. In other places of the Bible, such as in Acts 13.6, the same word is translated into magician, sorcerer, or even wizard, depending on which translation you read. Herodotus, a Greek historian from the 5th century BC, so roughly 500 years before Christ, described the Magi as having a priestly function in the Persian Empire. And in the book of Daniel, these Magi were part of the group of astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, and other advisors to the king of Babylon who were responsible for interpreting dreams and advising him on spiritual matters. So these magi were people who were actively looking for the fulfillment of various prophecies and actively searching the stars for signs. That's part of what they did, astrology. It's no wonder that they were the ones who recognized the star of Bethlehem for what it was. And one of the ancient prophecies about the coming of Messiah is from Numbers 24, 17, which says, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. There's more to this prophecy than that, but this ancient prophecy, which was actually delivered by Balaam, who was a sorcerer, not a Jewish prophet, is probably one of the prophecies that was known by the Magi who came to visit Jesus. And as you know, on several occasions throughout the Bible, God used pagan people to bring about his plan. This was one of those times, or at least a prophecy about it, and it was recorded by Moses. Now, a lot of people think that the star of Bethlehem was some super bright star that if it were real, everyone should have noticed. But the truth is, it wasn't super bright, and it was probably only noticed by people who were looking for it, those who knew what the night sky looked like otherwise. But what exactly was it? I don't know. But whatever it was, it was supernatural in origin. It was not part of the normal night sky. That's why it was recognized. Some scholars have tried to suggest that it was a supernova or an exploding star or a rare alignment of planets, uh, some maybe some uh, meteor or comet or something like that. We, we don't know the answer. What I do know is that it led people from the east to Bethlehem. But also, whatever it was, it was more than just some astronomical event because Matthew describes it as standing still over where Jesus was and leading the Magi directly to his house. Now, some scholars believe it was a two-part event with an astronomical occurrence to get them started on their quest, combined with an angel who then led them to their final destination. Now, remember the super, supernatural uh, pillar of fire that helped lead the Israelites through the wilderness? Maybe it was something similar in nature to that. Uh, that seems like it could make sense. The initial sighting of the astronomical event let the Magi know that something major was taking place, and it caused them to travel to Jerusalem, where they probably just assumed is where the king of the kings, uh, the king of the Jews, would be born. Then later, they needed more definitive guidance to the specific spot to locate Jesus. 
In Matthew 2.10, after leaving Herod and having been pointed in the direction of Bethlehem by the Jewish spiritual leaders, it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So if this were only a singular astronomical event, at some point, they either lost track of the star or it went away. Therefore, a two-part event of an astronomical occurrence combined with an angel or maybe the Holy Spirit guiding the way to the final destination is quite possible. Again, I don't know exactly how it happened. I just know that it did happen. I don't have to know how. But one thing I do know is that we can't be dogmatic about this star because we just don't have all of the information. Now, when the Bible says that the Magi came from the east, we don't know exactly what that means either. Uh, we, we know that at the time, coming from the east probably meant coming from Babylon, Persia, or Arabia. By the way, some skeptics have tried to use this passage in Matthew 2.2 that says, we saw his star in the east. And by the way, the version I read in, uh, in the New International Version didn't say that. It just says they saw his star, but it doesn't say in the east. Other translations say, we saw his star in the east. And people have used this to indicate that if the wise men saw it in the east, then they must have traveled from the west. Therefore, the Bible is inaccurate. However, in the original Greek, the sentence structure demonstrates that when they say in the east, it is descriptive of the position of the wise men, not of the star. In other words, these wise men were in the east looking westwardly from their easterly position. They saw it while in the east. That's what it means. So, there is a chance that these wise men were from the same academic lineage as the wise men in Babylon described in the book of Daniel. At that time, during the time of Daniel, there was a large influx of Jews into Babylon. This was uh, between 500 and 600 years before Christ, part of what is often referred to as the Babylonian exile. So these magi probably knew a great deal about the prophecies of the Messiah, but not necessarily had all of the details, which is why they would have gone to Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem. Therefore, they were actively looking for the coming of the Messiah. Now, for a little bit of historical perspective, if we go back to the book of Daniel, specifically in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream that he was trying to get interpreted. But unfortunately, none of his wise men, his magi, were able to tell him what the dream meant. In fact, they told him that no mere man could interpret his dream. Only someone from God would be able to do so. So Nebuchadnezzar gave the order for all of his wise men to be executed. But Daniel stepped up and told the king that he agreed no mere man could interpret the dream. Only God could. But that he, Daniel, would give the interpretation provided by God to the king. And he did so. And then he asked that the magi all be spared. And so they were. Because of the way all this took place, Daniel was held in very high regard by the Magi of Babylon. Over, over 500 years later, these future Magi came to Jerusalem looking for the Messiah. Matthew 2.3 says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. But why were they disturbed? Was it because King Herod was simply jealous? Or might it be that these foreigners showed up, having watched the stars, recognized that the Jewish Messiah had been born, and the Jews, including Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, were completely unaware that this major event had taken place? Or was there even more to it than that? When we consider who these Magi were, we have to consider the fact that they had probably traveled with a large entourage, a lot of people in a large caravan. The trip from ancient Babylon to Jerusalem was about 900 miles. So considering that these large caravans were made up of both riders and walkers, people traveling by foot, and probably some carts, it would 
take about 45 days if they traveled consistently for 20 miles each day. But that is extremely difficult to do. At least it used to be at those times. And when you consider the logistics involved, carrying of the tents, providing food, having to stop to find, catch, or buy food, refilling water, etc., they more than likely would travel for a few days at a time and then stop to rest, recuperate, and reconstitute their supplies for a few days at a time. And by the way, I researched travel times for ancient caravans and found that under the best conditions, it was considered fast to travel at a mere 15 miles per day with a large group and then have some additional time to rest. And that, by the way, was for hardened soldiers who were probably in peak physical condition and used to walking a lot. Under the best conditions means also that they were traveling on good roads, which partially existed in the Roman Empire. But if the Magi had used these roads, Herod probably would have known they were coming. Since the Magi were carrying the expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and since they were probably members of the royal court, it can be assumed that they had servants and bodyguards and, and other people in their entourage. The bottom line is that this wasn't just three guys riding into town looking for the newly born king of the Jews, and they didn't come within days of the birth of Christ. It was at least several months and quite possibly even more than a year. When they first saw the star, they probably had to take some time to figure out what it meant and then start planning the logistics, gathering supplies, determining who was going to make the trip, and then making the trip itself. And all of this didn't happen in the space of a few days. In fact, later in the story, when Herod realized that the Magi had not returned to tell him the location of the Messiah, he ordered the execution of every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two, which they said was in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Two years. Now remember, Bethlehem was only about five miles from Jerusalem, so it didn't take them long to travel there. But this two-year time frame gives another indication that Jesus was certainly not still lying in a manger when the Magi showed up. Remember, Joseph and Mary had taken Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem 40 days after his birth. Then they'd probably gone back to Nazareth and had plenty of time to pack up their belongings and move to Bethlehem possibly in God's plan to be there so that the wise men, the Magi, would be able to find him more easily. But when the Magi initially arrived in Jerusalem with this large caravan, one of the possible reasons why Herod was disturbed could be because he thought he was being invaded. That wasn't uncommon at the time either. And just as a side note, although the vast majority of nativity scenes depict these Magi riding on camels, as royal esteemed members of the court, they were probably on Arabian horses, and the camels they traveled with, if any at all, were probably used for carrying supplies. So when these magi arrived in Jerusalem, they were probably expecting a completely different reception, not because of who they were, but because of the arrival of the Messiah. They came to Jerusalem asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, as if they just expected that the people would know the answer and as if they expected a joyous environment because this prophecy had been fulfilled. These guys had traveled a great distance to get there, specifically to worship this newborn king, and would have been pretty confused if the religious elites in the capital city of the Jews were completely unaware. But that's what happened. There was no celebrating, just surprise and fear. The reigning king had to call on the religious advisors to find out what the Magi were even talking about. But the Magi were there to recognize, pay homage to, and worship this new king who was far greater than any king ever before or ever after. The king of kings. What a letdown after months of traveling and excited anticipation. In their minds, they had finally arrived. 
But the reality was completely different. It was totally unexpected that the religious leaders of the day had no idea. But what about the meaning of the visit of these magi? This, vid- uh, this visit shows international recognition by people of respected positions as to who Jesus is as the king of the Jews and as a deity, in other words, as God. How do we know that? Well, let's look at the three gifts they brought. The first mentioned gift is the gift of gold. Now, gold was considered the most precious of metals at the time and is universally considered a standard of wealth. Gold represents kingship, as in someone delivering to another person a gift that is most highly esteemed, a transfer of wealth from one to another. In those days, one king might give it to another to show their recognition of the receiving king as the higher authority. This represents the recognition of the kingship of Jesus. The second gift was frankincense. Now, frankincense was an expensive but pleasant-smelling type of incense that indicated deity. It was burned in the temple and at other times indicated giving reverence to God, such as the installation of a king, sometimes at royal weddings and when making offerings to God. This uh, represents recognition of the deity or the divine nature of Jesus as God. And the third gift was the gift of myrrh. Myrrh represented humanity or mortality. It was a perfume often used in burial ceremonies. And to be quite frank, it was a strange gift to give a king. In fact, this particular gift helps to demonstrate that these magi knew exactly who Jesus was. The combination of the gifts represents kingship, deity, and humanity, but also in this combination is the message of overcoming one of the key elements of humanity, mortality or death. So really what we have is an overall message of one who is king, one who is fully God, and one who is fully human and overcomes or defeats death. These magi knew exactly who this newborn baby was. One last thing to consider about these gifts is that we know they were valuable and they might have been made, uh, might have been what made it possible for Joseph and Mary to be able to afford the emergency relocation known as the flight to Egypt. They had to leave everything they had behind and flee as quickly as possible, knowing that Herod was going to try to find and kill Jesus. These valuable gifts served much more than the spiritual purpose of recognizing who Jesus was. They might have also served as the practical purpose of providing the money needed to escape, live in Egypt, and overall saving the life of Jesus. Now, I also want to quickly address the tradition that the number of wise men was three, which we often hear, and also that their names were Melchior, Casper, and Balthazar. There is absolutely no biblical support for this. Uh, it is tradition only, and the earliest records of this come in the 6th century, over 500 years after the birth of Christ. Depending on which sources you read, each of the Magi is described as a king coming from Arabia or Ethiopia or Persia or possibly from India. And one source even says that at least one of the kings came from China. Again, there is no scriptural support for this, and it only appears hundreds of years later. If this were true, or maybe rather if this were important, it would have been in the account provided in the Bible. The the number three is probably based only on the fact that there were three gifts given rather than the actual number of wise men who came. But again, this is completely unknown. So maybe it was only three. But one of the early Eastern Christian traditions, uh, specifically on the Eastern Orthodox size, actually says it was 12 kings who made this trip. 
Now, if you do some research online, you can go to Catholicism.org, and in, in there it talks about how the Catholic Church has named these three wise men, these three kings, specifically as mentioned before, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, and they've actually legitimized and venerated these three individuals as saints. In fact, the Catholic Cologne Cathedral in Germany has a gold-encrusted shrine to these three wise men, wherein they claim to hold the bones of the actual three magi who traveled to visit Jesus as described in Matthew. This shrine was actually opened in 1864, revealing that there are, in fact, the bones of three separate people buried there, and that it was resealed. Based on today's technology, it would be very interesting if the bones were to be examined to determine, first, how old they are, and second, where they came from, which would pretty much verify whether or not it's even possible that these bones were from the first century and could have been the bones of three particular wise men. However, this assessment has not been done, and I'm not sure it ever will be. So although this story of the Magi visiting Jesus is actually true, it actually happened, and it is not a parable, it also clearly demonstrates a picture of how people respond to Jesus. Some people are hostile, like Herod. Some people are indifferent, like the religious leaders in Jerusalem. After all, they clearly didn't care. Don't you think that if they cared even just a little bit, they would have sent some of their own priests down to Bethlehem to at least investigate what was going on? They knew what to expect. They knew the prophecies, but they didn't care enough to check it out. Maybe that's because they just didn't believe it. But either way, they did absolutely nothing about it. And then there are people who are exuberant and filled with joy about the prospect of worshiping Jesus as were these magi. So which one are you? Some people are like Herod, who was so focused on his own pleasure and being Lord of his own life, he wasn't about to give it up to Jesus. Then there are people like the religious leaders of the day who either didn't believe the Messiah had come or who didn't care. They were set in their own ways and also selfish, just in a different way than Herod. And then some people are like the Magi who excitedly desire to seek out this King of Kings to bring offerings to him and to worship him. I, for one, choose to be like the Magi. And you've got to make a choice too. Which one do you want to be like? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the ability to be cleansed of our sins so that we can spend eternity with you. We praise you for your majesty and glory. We recognize Jesus, as did the Magi, as the King of Kings, as fully human and fully God, as having defeated death not just 2,000 years ago, but forever. Not just for Jesus, but for us. And we thank you for that. We ask that you help us to represent you in the way that you would want. All of this we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, running a ministry is not free. There are many costs associated with developing and running programs. And we humbly ask for your support, especially if our messages have touched your heart or you believe they will touch the hearts of other people. We ask that you first pray about how God wants you to proceed. And then, if you feel led, help us focus on building the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian and you are not tithing anywhere, please consider tithing to us or consider gifting to us, however God leads. Remember, the money you have is God's money that He blessed you with to manage and to be a good steward. The money you tithe and gift to us 
builds the ministry of Crossroads Christian Fellowship and the International College for Christian Studies. The more financial support we receive, the more people we can reach. You can make this monthly contribution or one-time gift through PayPal by going to donationforchurch.com. You can also find other ways to donate on that webpage. Thank you in advance for your support and may God bless you. Friends, I sincerely hope that you are already a follower of Jesus. But if you are not, you need to know that the Bible makes it absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. We are all sinners and we all need Jesus. None of us can do it on our own. When we die, we will either go to heaven or to hell. But the ability to spend eternity in heaven is a free gift from God. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because he loved us so much, Jesus paid the penalty of death for our sins. He paid the price with his own blood, which means that we don't have to. That gift is free, and to receive it, all you have to do is recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Confess your sins to God, repent of your sins, in other words, you have to turn away from them, and turn your life over to Jesus, asking Him and allowing Him to be the Lord of your life. Remember, just because you repent and make Jesus your Lord does not mean you will instantly become perfect, but you do need to strive to model your life after Jesus. There are no magic formulas or special prayers to become a Christian. Just make it known to God. Just tell Him. He knows what's in your heart. Now, if you've made the decision to dedicate your life to Christ, which is often referred to as being born again, or if you've made the decision to rededicate your life to Christ, please let us know. Go to IamSavedByJesus.com and tell us about your decision. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to know if we can help you along the way. If you haven't made that decision yet, please pray about it, and we'll pray for you too if you let us know. This is the most important decision you can ever make in your entire life. It only takes a few seconds to decide, but the ramifications of your choice are literally eternal. Take it seriously. Remember, go to IamSavedByJesus.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. God bless. Well, it's almost time to go. Thank you for sharing this time with us. We are praying regularly for you and ask that you do the same for us. Until we come together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go now into the world and serve the Lord. Amen.